We hope this explanation of God's Word enriches your life. To help you understand the audience for this talk, we suggest you read the context material on the About Us page. Please read also our copyright page before recording or reproducing any material from philipjensen.com. The following sermon was given at St. Matthias Family Church, where Philip Jensen was senior minister. Well, what of uh, Mount Vesuvius, Paul, Mark Antony and Cleopatra got in common? All being made movies of by Cecil Beaton Mill. Mark Antony and Cleopatra are not actually inventions of uh, either Shakespeare or Hollywood. They were part of the Roman government order of their day, and Egypt of course, all part of the ancient Roman Empire, but they were big names, big names in their own day, and therefore the big name that can be remembered down to our day. But of course the Roman Empire was full of little names as well, little names that we don't remember down 2,000 years later unless you're a world expert in trivial pursuit. And if so, I feel sorry for you and sorry for your flatmates, husbands or wives. Mark Antony had a daughter called Antonia. That says something about Mark Antony, that his daughter's called Antonia, who became the, the mother of Emperor Claudius. And Antonia had a couple of slaves, brothers they were. The first one was called Pallas. Now you see you're moving down to a group of people no one's actually heard of before much. Pallas, uh, P-A-L-L-A-S, he became famous in his own time and way. He actually became a treasurer, uh, the treasurer of the empire, really, under Claudius. He was given his freedom and became privately very wealthy and powerful, especially through corruption and bribes, as was the way with politicians, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, and finally fell from uh, favour under Emperor Nero. He had a, another brother, who the name Marcus Antonius, in honour of uh, his, mar his mistress's father, and he had a surname, Marcus Antonius Felix. And that's the bloke that's in front of us here tonight in Acts chapter 24. So we're reached, reached that far. Felix was uh, released from his slavery and honoured by being given uh, a little job in the government, higher up than a slave, of course, uh, lower down than living in the royal family, uh, he was given the procurator job out in Judea, the kind of job you do give to a released slave because it's such a pain in the neck that he deserves it. But from AD 52, this man became the governor of Judea within the Roman Empire. Now, we know of these men because of their connection with the top rulers and because, because of their own minor prominence. That is, F Felix... He's recorded for us in the Roman historian Suetonius and Tacitus, as well as with the Jewish historian Josephus. Josephus records him because he was the governor of Judea. Suetonius and Tacitus record him not because he's the governor of Judea. Judea was so unimportant, who'd bother recording the governors of Judea, but because they were connected with Pallas and with the whole family of Mark Antony. And so we get some real picture of... Uh, this man, Felix, much more than we do of Festus, who is mentioned here in chapter 25, we only get about Festus from the Jewish historians. But Felix, we know quite a bit about him. Because even though he was a bit player in the whole cast and scene of uh, the history of the world, he was a bit player with all the best connections. Now, Judea was no easy post. Full of, uh, in the mid-50s, it was full of terrorists or freedom fighters, depending which side of the fence you were on. The assassina assassinations of uh, collaborators was fairly common. There was a great restlessness and tumult was taking place. And Felix, in his way of controlling the kind of ter terrorist uh, campaigns that were taking place, was noted for his uh, barbarous brutality, the ruthless vigour with which he oppressed and squashed all rebellion cruelties and oppression were his mechanism. He was also noticed for mismanagement as well as tyranny and for financial mismanagement. Tacitus, the Roman historian, who was a bit of a snob and therefore didn't like slaves becoming uh, governors, he wrote, with savagery and lust, he exercised the power of a king 
with the mind of a slave. It's a very snobbish view of anybody, but it most likely has an element of truth in him, unless, of course, you think that minds of slaves are very noble. Around 59 AD, Felix was recalled to Rome because, well, he was in such trouble with the Jews. However, he was saved and rescued from uh, the fate of the trial, presumably by his uh, brother Pallas, who was uh, so powerful, but also possibly because of his wife Drusilla. Now, I have often asked the question, who would ever marry a woman with a name like Drusilla? And whether God is guiding you to marry a person called Drusilla, it means with dewy eyes, which I take it means she cries a lot or something like that. And the answer to the kind of person who'd marry a Drusilla is Felix. Why, why is he and his wife introduced? Why do we know about them here? Well, Drusilla was of the royal family herself. That is the royal Israel family. She was the youngest daughter of King Herod Agrippa I. Now we're going to get into all kinds of Herods tonight and history tonight. If you're not a note taker, you're going to get fairly lost. I'll try my best, but note taking will help you. Just put down names and bits of genealogies here and that's why the blue sheet's given to you, just by the way. I just thought I'd mention this to newcomers amongst us. It's always helpful to keep your concentration going. And uh, if you do forget your pen when you come in, there's usually some in the lost property. What doesn't worry me that there's pens in the lost what property. What worries me is the number of Bibles in the lost property in this church. I do hope that uh, if you've lost yours recently, um, uh, that you've bought another, or that you've got it so hidden in your heart that you don't need to read it anymore, you can just flip over your eyelids and come up to the right passage. However, there are quite a few Bibles over there, um, with or without names. Now, anyway... You'll find that you'll need to take some notes as we go down the route, most likely. Drusilla is the daughter of King Herod Agrippa I. He's the bloke who died back in Acts chapter 12. Remember, he, everyone started saying, you look like a god, you look like a god, and so he started to like the idea and was immediately struck down in Acts 12. Drusilla was first betrothed to a prince who refused to become a Jew, so the wedding was cancelled at the last moment, and then she was married off to another prince, an Assyrian king who did become a Jew in order to marry her, Azizus, funny name. At 16, she was a happily married lady or an unhappily married lady. We don't know her state of happiness because at 16, she was seduced by the passing Roman Felix. Felix uh, stole her with the aid of a Cypriot ma uh, magician, we're told, stole her from her husband and she became his wife. Uh, Felix didn't become Jewish in order to marry her. She gave up that kind of Judaism, although you'll notice the great interest in Judaism that's still within the family, seeing that's obviously a point of contention between husband and wife. They had one son whom they called Agrippa. Agrippa ran in the family. Uh, that's about the third generation of Agrippas. And he was killed at Vesuvius in 79 AD. That is completely irrelevant to everything else I've said tonight. But having found a miscellaneous piece like that, I just couldn't resist giving it to you. You didn't know anybody else killed in Vesuvius, did you? Well, now you know that Felix's son was killed in uh, Vesuvius in AD 79. For Felix, this wasn't his first marriage, of course. This was his third marriage. Uh, he'd married someone of royal birth we don't know of in the first place. It's recorded that he did. But his second marriage... No, no, we, we do know the first one. We don't know the second one. The first one was the granddaughter of Antony and Cleopatra. She gets a look in tonight too, you see. Antony uh, had uh, children by several partners, but his granddaughter by Cleopatra was Felix's first wife, who Felix got rid of. He got rid of his second wife, and now he's on to his third, the 16-year-old that he seduced and carried away. It's a charming couple, really. Uh, typical of the age and the time, corrupt in their public life and corrupt in their private life. Sexual immorality, financial corruption, family influence and power and savage imperial oppression is the life of Felix and Drusilla. Now they're not the only characters introduced to us in this passage tonight. We also have Festus. At verse 27 of chapter 24, Felix, in order to... Uh, gain a favour with the Jews who were just about to, to take accusation against him in Rome and have him uh, court-martial disciplined and the rest, left Paul in prison and Festus, Porcius Festus, replaced him. Now we only know about Festus from the Jewish point of view and he was certainly liked by Josephus much more than Felix 
But still, he too was a, uh, a bit of a rotter. He still had his problems with terrorists and the rest, and it was a difficult country to rule, was Judea. And he fell in with the Herod family as well and became great friends with Herod Agrippa II. Now, Agrippa II is also mentioned here. Verse 13 of chapter 25, a few days later, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea to pay their respects to Festus. So we'll just take it one more verse tonight and get us down to uh, get all the, all the characters of this uh, unholy huddle together. Agrippa II is the son of Agrippa I and therefore is the brother of Drusilla. Agrippa II was uh, the king of the, uh, of the Jewish community, so to speak, but was himself, like all the Herods, no good. He... Uh, uh, particularly uh, fell in with the Romans and in the end at the great battle between the Jews and the Romans which was decisively won by the Romans of course in 70 AD you find out that Agrippa's on the Roman side after all. He did try to make peace but he sold out completely to the enemy. In fact Agrippa and Bernice are two of the more unpleasant characters you ever come across. Agrippa II is the last of the Herodian kings uh, to the relief of everybody, except the Herodians, I guess. I mean, the next generation was lost at Vesuvius in 79 AD. Herod the Great, you've got four generations of Herods in the New Testament. That's why they keep on popping up. They're all called Herod, but you've got to pick. Herod the Great's the first great one. He's the one that tried to kill the baby Jesus, right? The wise men from the east came to Herod the Great, the great builder, but he was out to kill the baby Jesus. He had umpteen sons, he was a particularly unpleasant man. As he was on his deathbed dying, he had his two eldest sons executed because he was worried about them trying to usurp his throne. He really, he died about three days after them. He really was one of the most unpleasant characters in human history. But he did leave enough sons to divide up his kingdom. Some of them uh, you, you know by their other names like Antipas or Philip. I can't really understand how someone could have such a name like that and be like he was, but there you go. Now Herod's sons tried to, well didn't try, they succeeded. One of Herod's sons killed John the Baptist and tried to kill Jesus. Herod's grandson, it's a little bit tricky to work out which son that it all comes from, is the first of the Agrippas, Agrippa I. He was the one who killed James the Apostle and he was the one who tried to kill Peter and was himself cut down. Herod the Great's great-grandson, Agrippa II, is the one that we have here in chapter, chapter 25, verse 13, and he is going to try the Apostle Paul. This is Drusilla's brother, who is accompanied by Bernice. Now, I don't know if you've got any Bernices here, I don't know if we've got any Drusillas here, um, but I'd keep it quiet either way if I were you. I used to think Bernice was his wife, but Bernice wasn't his wife. Well, she was. Actually, she was his sister. She was a... Uh, uh, married and then widowed very early in life and then she was remarried to her uncle. Um, he died shortly thereafter, a different uncle than the ones I've already mentioned. And so she married, she then moved into an incestuous relationship with her brother Agrippa II. Uh, Agrippa After a while the public notoriety was so great that she went off and married another bloke whom she deserted almost immediately in order to return to her brother. It's at this period in her history that uh, she meets up with Paul. It was a public and well-known scandal of the day. You see, not even the pagans really liked that kind of uh, relationship. Later, when the family sold out to the Romans, she became the uh, mistress of both Vespasian and his son Titus simultaneously. We are dealing here with lovely people. The Herod's household is, I think, a mini-series waiting to be filmed. <laughs> there is not one nice person in the whole batch of them. But the judgments that we can make about them now, you couldn't make about them then. You couldn't say now what I've even said tonight. I mean, John did. John, you remember, he said that it wasn't right for one of the Herod brothers to have another one's wife as his wife. And John lost his head for saying it. And Jesus called the Herod that fox and wouldn't give him any answer at all, wouldn't even speak to him. Notice how the Jewish lawyers here in verses 2 to 4, in the traditional conventional pattern of Roman uh, law cases, pile their 
hypocritical lies upon each other. Chapter 24, verses 2 to 4. When the poor was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. We've enjoyed a long period of peace under you. That's just not true. And your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Yes, oppression on all hands. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix. We acknowledge this with profound gratitude. I mean, this man has absolutely no brains or no spine, or presumably both. But in order not to weary you further, because I can't think of anything else nice to say about you, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly, lest you get angry with us and do in what you normally do with us. Paul's comment in verse 10 is also polite, but speaks the truth. I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I'm gladly make my defence. Doesn't say anything really nice about him at all, does he? Just speaks the truth. He has been a judge for a number of years. It's always like that with rulers. You're not allowed to say what you think about them while they're still around, but after they're gone, history can tell the truth. And that's true of the premiers of, the, of New South Wales, isn't it? And the politicians of New South Wales, who have a long track record of corruption being on the take, being thoroughly and utterly immoral. But you're not allowed to say it until after they're dead. Then once you say it, once they're dead, then everybody can say, well, we all, we all knew that all along, didn't we? I mean, it was so bad at one stage in the history of New South Wales, we were the only state in the world that had laws against defaming the dead. For the politicians of New South Wales brought in legislation which prevented you even telling the truth after they had died the only state in the world. It's one of those kind of unique contributions to legislation that has been available through New South Wales. It has to do not only with the sheer corruption of, the pre of their predecessors, but the continuing corruption of the office holders. Mercifully, it has been removed from the, from the uh, legislation of recent years. History tells the truth of politicians and so every now and then you get these politicians who uh, reach the stage where they're about to retire talking about their place in history and arguing on the House of Law how will history judge us this day if we pass this legislation because they only know too well. And in the days of TV miniseries you don't have to wait for very much history before people start at least giving a fictional view of what took place. It's like Shakespeare's retellings, though. It's sometimes done for the sake of the party of the people running the television shows. So the actions have their consequences and are praised or denounced. And people make their judgments. I remember as a small child being told by one of my fellow school pupils about the greatest man of the 20th century. And I went home to my parents and told them about the greatest man of the 20th century. I didn't know anything more than the kid in the school had told me, but I can remember him well telling me, my friend Peter, I won't use his surname, but I can remember him well telling me, I can remember the tree we were standing under, and this is back in medieval times, I mean, he told us the greatest man of, of this century, as I just mouthed it straight off to my father about this greatest man of the 20th century and what had just happened to him. His name was Joseph Stalin. <laughs> my father was relatively unimpressed with this judgment of history and told me some home truths about Joseph Stalin that I'll never forget. I suspect that my friend Peter these days would not now believe that that was the greatest man of the 20th century. I don't think anybody is going to say now that Joseph Stalin was the greatest man of the 20th century. Judgments of history of the great people take a different perspective, don't they? Why are these people remembered? Festus, Drusilla, Felix, Agrippa, Bernus. Why are they remembered? They're not remembered for the great things they did. That's not it. They were minor officials worthy of possibly a footnote in the trivia column of world history, as most politicians are. It's because some of them were related to a major figure on the household of a major figure, was the slave in the household of a major figure that they actually get a feature in the history books at all. Why are they remembered? They're remembered by the Jews because they're part of the Jewish oppression, but why are they really remembered? It's only for one reason, because one day a man stood in front of them in chains. They're not remembered because of their great might and their great power, they're remembered because of their prisoner who was in chains. For he is so important in the history of mankind that nearly 2,000 years later we are spending a night learning about these people. Not because of them and what they've done, but because of him and who he was and what God did through him. 
It's like Pontius Pilate. In 1961, they dug up an inscription to his name and his title. And it was written in all the history books, the kind of thing that appears in Time magazine. Pontius Pilate found on a stone in Caesarea. 1961. Why do they make such a ballyhoo about Pontius Pilate being discovered like that? Because of a man who stood before him one day in chains. For if it wasn't for Jesus, Pontius Pilate would be a nobody and a nothing in the history of the world. And so we have a couple of cases here. The first case, we have Paul being brought before Felix in chapter 20. And Drusilla's in the story too. Let's just remember where we're up to. Paul, the Jew, became a Christian and became a preacher of the gospel amongst the Gentiles. He returns to Jerusalem, which leads to tremendous opposition because of the Gentiles. For the whole of Christianity and Judaism is going through this realignment problem I spoke of last week as they take on board Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians and how that undermines the whole notion of the division between Jews and Gentiles. A riot breaks out and Paul is rescued by Lysias, the Roman, government, the Roman commander. He's tried by the Sanhedrin, which Paul divides by talking about the, uh, the resurrection. He's put into prison, um, and in prison we hear of a threat to his life, and so he is rescued, escorted down to Caesarea. Five days later, chapter 24, verse 1, five days later, the high priest and the elders and the lawyer named Tertullus, they all come down to bring the charges formally before the governor, who hasn't really heard any of this beforehand. Now, there are three charges brought against him. Firstly, he's a troublemaker, verse 5, stirring up riots everywhere he goes, a disturber of the Roman peace. That's a serious charge. The Romans liked their peace that they had established in their empire. Secondly, he's a leader of the Nazarene sect, verse 5. What is implied in that charge is that this sect is not a genuine piece of Judaism. This sect is really illegitimate. And because it's illegitimate, then it really is illegitimate in terms of Rome. Rome had its legitimate religions. Judaism was a legitimate religion. If you could show Christianity wasn't genuine Judaism, then Christianity was an illegal religion and could be persecuted. And so... It's a sect. The implication also may mean he's one of the terrorists. They're a sect too. The third charge is in verse 6, that he desecrates the temple. Bringing Gentiles in is how they thought he was desecrating the temple. Last week we saw it, chapter 21, verse 29. And it's a serious charge because desecration of the temple could bring execution. Paul gives three answers. In verse 12, he says, I'm not uh, been stirring up any crowd. That's not the case in the temple, in the synagogue, in the city. Nowhere can these people prove, verse 13, that I've been stirring up trouble at all. The trouble uh, is, is not caused by me. And then in verse 14, he confesses. So the first thing is he rebuts the accusation. The second thing, he confesses to the second accusation. Yes, I do worship God along the thing called the way that sect as you want to call it but it's not really a sect because it's exactly what the law and the prophets have always said I have the same hope in God as they do that is in the resurrection in the judgment day the resurrection of the righteous and the wicked and so that's why I seek to live with a clear conscience let me just uh, pay a little attention to that uh, phrase that you see there in verse 14 please because it's fairly important I think for the rest of the book Verse 15, I have the same hope in God as these men that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. We tend to use the word resurrection to mean uh, life after death, uh, almost like kind of an immortal soul. But the New Testament, and the book of Acts particularly, sees the resurrection as the day of judgment. And in our language, it's the day of judgment, the day when the righteous and the wicked will be raised up for judgment. And because the righteous and the wicked are going to be raised up for judgment, therefore, verse 16, I always try and live with a clear conscience before God because I believe there's going to be a judgment day when I'll be raised up either as the righteous or as the wicked, I'll be raised up for the judgment day and so I seek to live with a clear conscience. But his argument here is to say, I'm orthodox. 
I'm following the everything they believe. The hope I have is the same hope they have. The law, the prophets they believe in, and the law and the prophets I believe in. He's harking back to the Sanhedrin debate, isn't he? And he's looking forward uh, to a challenge to Felix, which I'll mention in a moment. But you'll find it today, friends, is exactly the same. Wherever people truly preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, you will find groups trying to mar- try to, to marginalise us, try to actually put us on the edge of religion. Uh, they call you things like a fundamentalist fanatic, which is a kind of a, a, a way of saying you're in the loony bin. It doesn't come to terms with what you do believe or don't believe. It's just a label which can make you sound like you're on the excessive extreme edge of Christianity. It's a sadness, really, because people don't take on board the reality. That is, I believe in God, the creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ who died for my sins and rose again and is seated at the right hand of God and will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit who has been poured out to bring new birth, regeneration and who sanctifies us by, by, by the work he does in our lives. I believe in the word of God, the scriptures, that they are inspired and thoroughly reliable. Because I believe those things, some people want to say I'm one of the lunatic fringe of Christianity. Yet those things are just the very basic Christian teachings. Those are the kinds of things that you find in the scriptures and that you find in the creeds that all true Christians have believed down through 2,000 years. But yet if you believe them, really believe them, then you are put as being part of the edge of Christianity, part of a novelty that takes place which is just totally untrue. People don't like people who believe anything these days. If you believe in total tolerance... They love you because you tolerate them. But if you believe in anything that is absolute, anything that is right-wrong, anything that is black-white, well, then you are unacceptable to them. And the easy way to make you rejected is by saying, well, of course, they believe a fairly esoteric, eccentric kind of Christianity, an unusual, on-the-fringe, strange... He's a fundamentalist. Verses 17 to 20 gives us the third answer the third charge. He said, I didn't desecrate the temple. What I was doing was bringing gifts, offerings. And uh, I was quite clean at the time, ritually clean. And I wasn't there to cause any disturbance. In fact, he says, the people who are making these charges, they ought to be here, which is part of Roman law and a very important part of Roman law because if you brought false charges, you were given the punishment that you tried to seek to bring upon other people. So he said, they should be here. Why aren't they here? which really brings the law case to an end. I may mention that in mentioning the uh, money, two side... Now, look, you gave a little nap. Now's the moment to have the nap. Just two little bits. For those of you who are interested in kind of esoteric Bible understanding, there's, uh, verse 24 is just a little bit funny. There. Not 24, is it 21? Uh, no, 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 17. After an absence several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. Nowhere else in the book of Acts does it mention that Paul was bringing gifts for the poor? It's not mentioned. But when you read 2 Corinthians and 1 Corinthians and Romans, you'll find that's the reason he was going to Jerusalem. And so sometimes people scratch their heads and say, well, did Luke know anything about Paul? Because the whole reason that Paul's going to Jerusalem to bring gifts to the poor, Luke makes no reference to. Now, you've got to understand how the Bible is written. It's written by different people with different purposes in mind. Luke was not writing to discuss the issue of money given to the poor. Because, well, why he's doing it is of no relevance to us between him and God. And uh, it's not for us to be saying about uh, listening into other people's acts of charity. It's of no interest to Paul, uh, to to Luke. And that's why he doesn't record it in the book of Acts. It's of great interest to the Romans and to the, the Roman relationships and the Corinthian relationships. That's why Paul mentions it. But here in verse 17 shows that Luke was aware of it. He just doesn't tell us everything. Now, it's important to grasp it, friends. In the New Testament, you're not being told everything. You're being told some things that fit the aim and purpose of the author. And all kinds of other things are just being left out because they don't fit the aim and purpose of the author. The the giving of money didn't fit much into Acts. It did into 1 Corinthians. And there's many things like that. However... It was a bit of a mistake to mention it because look down in verse... Oh, now, you all need to be waking up for this bit because it's relevant to tonight. Look down in verse uh, 
24 following where Drusilla and Felix keep on wanting to listen to Paul and don't want to listen to him and verse 26 at the same time he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe it was a bit of a tactical blunder to mention that I actually had money to give away uh, I'm sure that if he'd come, come as a complete pauper then he wouldn't have been held around uh, on the hope of getting a bribe out of him I suspect well the outcome of the trial was a great non-event Felix uh, no doubt saw the lack of Jewish witnesses and evidences and uh, procrastinated as uh, those of us who don't want to make decisions know just how to do so brilliantly he says well I'll need to hear from Lysias the man, the, 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 the soldier, Claudius, the soldier he's already heard from Claudius, he's got a letter telling him that he's nothing against this man but he's got to have some reason for holding over the charge and so he ignores the letter which we have recorded for us in 2329 and says well we'll hang around and so he hung around for two years didn't take two years to get the report from the commander that he already had in his hip pocket but he had entertaining discussions with him over these two years he was notice verse 22 well acquainted with the with the way because verse 22 24 he had as a jewish wife and also verse 26 because he hoped for a bribe however he leaves paul in prison verse 27 at the end of two years because he wanted favour from the Jews. This man's a politician, isn't he? Uh, he's keeping an innocent man in jail for two years, all for his own purposes. But in those discussions, notice what Paul says. Paul, in verse 24, is talking to him about faith in Jesus Christ. And notice how he describes it, verse 25. He discoursed on righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. And Felix was afraid. It's a little bit like John the Baptist and that other Herod who kept on wanting to listen to what John the Baptist had to say but not wanting to hear it because he knew he was speaking the truth and wouldn't kill him because he was afraid of him but then of course was more afraid of his promise and his friends and so had him beheaded. These people who live on such unrighteousness get their lives in a tangled mess, especially if they've got anything of a conscience left. Righteousness, self-control and judgment to come. Uh, let's quickly turn to the Festus case. We'll deal with it much more quickly. The charges are similar. They're just two years older. There were many serious charges, verse 7, but they couldn't prove them. They want to transfer him to their court back up in Jerusalem where they'll be able to ambush him on the way and kill him. Paul's answers to Festus. Festus, you see, is trying to appease the Jews. He's just moved in to control what is a troublesome group of people. If he can give them some small titbits of, of concessions, then possibly they'll make his life a bit easier. But Paul was a Roman citizen, and you couldn't just ignore the law. And so Paul denies doing anything wrong, verse 8. He says, I haven't acted against the law of the Jews or against the temple, and he appeals to Caesar. Festus uh, attempt at compromise, uh, an out-of-court settlement, let's go up to Jerusalem and discuss it, comes to nothing. I want to go to Caesar, I'm not going to be tried up in Jerusalem. And so Paul goes to the one who sees himself as the ruler of rulers, Caesar. But of course there's a higher court still, that is God himself. He who holds the heart of the king in his hand and turns it wherever he wills. God had determined already that Paul would go to Caesar. Come to me, chapter 23, verse 11. When he's just been taken out of the riot in the Sanhedrin, he's back in jail. The following night, verse 11, 23, 11. The following night the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. It was God's plan that Paul would get to Rome. And it's God's plan that Paul will get to Rome in, in chains, I may say, but more of that in a few weeks' time. And now we see in verse 12 how it's going to happen in chapter 25, verse 12. It happens because he's appealed to the higher court, to the court of Caesar. He's not only going to go to Rome to testify to Jesus, he's going to go to Caesar to testify about Jesus. God is bringing his purposes about that the gospel comes from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. Repeatedly, the kings of this earth raise up their hand against God and his Messiah. That's what Psalm 2 tells us. Repeatedly, God uses their opposition 
to bring about his own purposes. John the Baptist was God's servant, cut down by the wickedness of evil kings. Jesus was God's own son, crucified by the wickedness of evil men, evil rulers. But it was always God's purpose. And by what they did to Jesus, by what they did to John, so God's purposes were fulfilled. And now the apostles, James was killed. And now Peter they tried to kill. And John they had put in prison. And Paul is now in prison. Jesus invited people when they would be his followers to take up their cross and follow him. And it seems that they all were to meet and to share in carrying the cross. But notice Paul's defence. Verse 14. I worship the God of our fathers. There's no divorce between the New Testament and Old Testament God. It's the same God. I believe in the law and the prophets. There's no rejection of the Old Testament as being substandard, sub-Christian or anything like that. The Old Testament is the word of God that true Christians believe in fully. For Jesus came not to abandon the Old Testament but to fulfil it and we are to be obedient to it. I have the same hope in God that they do, that is that there's going to be a judgment day called the resurrection and therefore I try to keep my conscience clear. That is Paul's defence, that is his great confession. And therefore when he expounds the way to Felix, he expounds it in terms of faith in Jesus for this is what agrees with the law and the prophets. For this is the basis of the hope in God for the resurrection and the judgment. And this is how his conscience has been cleansed so that he will be able to stand on the judgment day. But this faith in Jesus is an ethical faith, friends. Not like so much of the New Age religions and mysticism, the journey inwards, the experience, the self-discovery which has no morality and no objectivity and nothing outside yourself. This faith in Christ Jesus is about righteousness, self-control and the judgment to come. You see that there as he explains it in verses 24 and 25, such that Felix was afraid. Of course he was afraid. For Felix and Drusilla needed to hear about righteousness, both about the righteousness that demands that their practice of life be condemned and the righteousness by which God can declare them to be right with him through the death of Jesus. If ever there were rulers who needed to hear about righteousness, it was the wicked Felix and the degenerate Drusilla who needed to hear about it. And Felix and Drusilla needed to learn about self-control, their sexual promiscuity, their lust and their debauchery. They needed to hear about self-control, that a person can be in control of their lives and do that which is righteous. And if ever there was a couple that needed to hear about it, Felix and Drusilla needed to know of the judgment before it was too late. They needed to hear of God's righteous judgment and the day of resurrection when they would be held accountable for all they had done. People don't like us talking about righteousness. They do not like us talking about self-control. They do not like talking, us talking about judgment because they are afraid of all those things, because they are made to feel guilty by all those things, because they see it as a fear technique to try and scare people into being Christian and therefore see it as unloving. But of course for people who are going to face a judgment day who have lived a life without self-control and without any hint of righteousness, the most loving kind thing you can ever do is to tell them of righteousness of self-control and of the judgment that is to come, especially as we have a way of righteousness that comes from God through the death of Jesus on our behalf. We have a way of forgiveness that we are not declaring to them righteousness in the sense that you don't have it and by the way the judgment's coming on you and there's no hope. We're saying there is hope, friends, because Jesus has died and risen again. You can have faith in him and you can be right you can be right with God. You can be more righteous than you've ever been because Jesus has paid the penalty for you. And so in the resurrection, you will rise up with the righteous. You who have lived a life of debauchery and oppression, of corruption and immorality, you can stand before God, the creator of the universe, as one who is right in him. And you can live a life of self-control 
here and now. It's so easy, friends, for us to preach Christianity in terms of forgiveness. But true Christianity is about repentance and forgiveness, isn't it? A repentance that may lead to restitution so that you'll go back and say, look, I've robbed you from this, excuse me, I want to pay back. It may be the boss, it may be the tax agent, it may be the tax department, it may be who knows whom you've stolen from what and what. But repentance means actually I'm going to fix up what I've done wrong. And I'm going to say sorry to the people that I... And I'm going to stop doing what I've been habitually doing and I'm going to change the way I live. Repentance is part of the message. The faith in Jesus Christ that brings forgiveness is a faith which also involves righteousness, self-control and the judgment to come. It's a striving to keep our conscience clear before God and man. Here's the problem for our rulers, isn't it? For like Felix and Drusilla, they too, our rulers in this land, need to hear about righteousness, self-control and the judgment to come. They need to hear about not the judgment of history, but the judgment of God. For much is given and much will be required, and their power is given to them from God, and they are answerable to God. They think they're answerable to the people at the ballot box, but they're not. They think they're answerable to the people in the backroom party, but they're not. They think they're answerable to... To history, but it won't matter. They think they're answerable to the law, but they seem to have a tremendous capacity for avoiding it. What they're really answerable to is their God. And there is no avoiding him. There is no escaping his justice and his righteousness and his judgment. And the tawdry sex scandals, the greedy fingers in the till, the immoral legislation and the perpetuation of favours for friends and for boys in the club, the failure to prosecute justice in our land is a, is a continuing running sore in the history of our nation and our state and our city. And these people, these rulers of ours, one day will be held accountable before God for all of it. But let's not point fingers out there to them without looking at ourselves and our own little kingdoms that we rule, our own households, our own lives, our own selves. For who rules us? Who makes the choices for you and me about what we do and where we go, what we buy and how we spend, how we enjoy and how we live, how we treat others? Who makes choices for us but us? And for whom are we answerable to for the choices we make but ourselves? No, it is God to whom we are answerable. He is the ruler of rulers. It is his justice by which we must live. He is given to us and enables us to have self-control that we may be answerable at the judgment day. And therefore is your faith in Christ for that judgment day? Is he your hope? For he is the only hope, the real hope. If so, then you must start cleaning up your little kingdom so that it will represent faith in Jesus Christ as we wait for the resurrection, striving to keep our conscience clear, so that it will represent self-control and righteousness. And if not, by what chance or hope do you possibly live now? By what possible option have you got for that day of judgment what answer are you going to give what explanation will be yours for the unrighteousness and the lack of control at the judgment day put your hope in Christ for forgiveness is available now and a changed life can be yours and a certain eternity also. Do you want to ask questions or make comments about what I've said? Yep. The origin of the term the way 
I may be incorrect in this, but uh, uh, the Greek word is hodos, from which you get exodos. And so in the Old Testament, the exodus was the founding of the people of Israel. That is when they were rescued and saved and that is when they were constituted as the people of God. Jesus' exodus, we're told on the Mount of Transfiguration when he discussed his exodus with Moses and Elijah, you'll find it in Luke's Gospel, that Moses and Elijah were discussing his exodus, that is his death. That by his death, we now find salvation and rescue and release out of our captivity, just as the people of Israel found their exodus, their way then. And that is what is being promised in Isaiah 40 is going to happen in the new age. There is to be effectively a new exodus. And so it's a way, I presume, of saying we are the followers of the way of the exodus. Now, that is off the top of my head. I'll look it up later, John unless somebody can confirm that for us now or tell us otherwise. I'd be happy to hear. Anyone know? Good question, isn't it? I'll look it up later. Any others? Now, Paul appeals to Caesar... Isn't that taking the situation out of God's hand? One of the beauties of the sovereignty of God is that he sovereignly rules over human beings to whom he gives self-control. So that I do not allow God to rule over my life by me doing nothing. Just kind of let go and let God go with the flow. That, that is not how... I make decisions and choices. I pray to God for wisdom and God says he gives it to me fully and freely and so I must accept it without questioning. So I say, okay, God, I asked you for it. You promised to give it to me. Therefore, I am now wise. This is the choice I'm making. And I make my decisions to do what... Knowing that at any point, God can pull the plug on any one of those decisions. And so I say, I appeal then to see Caesar. And Festus says, tough, I'm an immoral judge and runs me through. Okay? At any point, God can change the pattern of what's making... But I don't make, I don't make no decisions on sound, grounds of saying, well, God will continually supervise everything, so don't ask me what next. I constantly make decisions. So God's sovereignty rules through my decision-making. That's an important point to grasp because there are some people who want to be holy by just letting go. But you're not holy by just letting go. You're holy by gaining control. So part of the fruit of the Spirit, you know, love, joy, peace, patience, is self-control. You know people have the Spirit of God when they control themselves. You kind of think, well, you know when you have the Spirit of God when the Spirit controls you, but that's not what it says. You know when you have the Spirit of God when you control yourselves in holiness and righteousness. Self-control is the outcome of the Holy Spirit. And so making a decision, making an action is an expression of your confidence in God that he is ruling in you and over you. Yep. Why did Paul take so long to appeal to Caesar? Now there's a very good question. Yes. Well, I'm looking up one for John too, so I'll check that out. I'm not sure whether he had the option of doing it before then. I'm not sure that he didn't have to wait until that uh, point in time and that possibly Felix, who was actually after a bribe, was just not listening to any appeal and not giving him the, the alternative. But uh, whether there is a... We know a certain amount of by Roman law, whether by Roman law it has to be in this kind of context that he can do it would be my first guess. Isn't you like to find out something else I don't know? What are we going to do now? I'm going to lead in prayer and then we're going to sing? Right, let's pray. We thank and praise you, Heavenly Father, for the death of your Son and for his resurrection. We thank you that through him we can be forgiven and we who have lived in unrighteousness and degeneracy can be washed clean. We praise you for this great mercy of yours. 
and that your righteousness can be declared over us, it just astonishes us, Father, and we thank and praise you. We do pray, Father, that you would help us to be your forgiven people, to be the people that you are changing, that we might live in righteousness and self-control as we await the judgment day to come, striving to live with a clear conscience, a conscience that has been washed clean, clean by your Son. We pray, Father, for those amongst us this night who do not have this hope of being raised up to sit with you in the heavenly places, who do not know what lies ahead and do not have any way of resolving the sin and the wickedness of the past. We do pray, Father, that by your mercy, each one of us here this night might know of the forgiveness of Jesus and might repent, turning back on our sinfulness, making restitution for the past, living a changed life now, and seeking the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ when we will be able to share with him in glory for all eternity. We pray, Father, for our governments that they might be converted in heart and mind and rule our land with justice and peace. We pray, Father, that you would bring judgment upon those who continue in corruption in high places, who continue to pervert the way of justice in our land, continue to turn aside the widow and the needy for the sake of the wealthy, who continue, Father, to bring into their own pockets and into their own credit glory and power and honour instead of serving you and serving your people. We do pray, Father, that you would help us to continue to obey the governments that have been appointed over us and that you would help our land to be ruled in justice and righteousness. But more especially, Father, we pray that you would help us that we would rule our own lives in justice and righteousness. And so we pray for your mercy and for your assistance for our governments and for each other and for ourselves this night in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the talks on philipjensen.com. Please check our copyright page before recording or reproducing any material on philipjensen.com.